What critical mistakes have been made by earnest investigators into the Kennedy assassination that could inform the 9-11 truth movement? What significant gains could be achieved by the call for a new congressional investigation into the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, among other prominent leaders in the 60s? Does the impeachment of Donald Trump, like the impeachment of Nixon, reflect a plan by the shadow government to contain and control U.S. foreign policy? What are the similar patterns and modi operandi between the Kennedy assassination and the 9-11 attacks? On this week's Global Research News Hour, on the occasion of the anniversary of the assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy, we examine the characteristics that this crime has in common with similar so-called deep events allegedly perpetrated by elements within the U.S. military intelligence apparatus. We first hear from writer-researcher Mark Rabinowitz about some of the successful and not-so-successful strategies for exposing the crimes of the Kennedy assassination and other deep events. Then we hear from respected investigator Peter Dale Scott about the subversion of constitutional power by the national security state from Kennedy to Nixon to Trump and how the current impeachment drama in Washington is masking a severe democratic crisis in American society. On this week's program, Deep State Coup d'etat, subverting the U.S. presidency from JFK to Trump. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 22nd, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Akin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The Arab Spring changed the status quo in the Middle East and provided an opportunity for Turkey to engage in power projections within a new regional order where Ankara would be the center of power. However, what Ankara had not calculated is that by abandoning the zero problems with neighbors policy and flooding Syria with tens thousands of terrorists, it was creating the very conditions for the PKK to return to Syria after a more than 20-year hiatus under the guise of protecting Syria's Kurds. Essentially, the project for a greater Turkey has become secondary in the case of Syria, with Ankara's current focus on what it calls a counter-terrorist operation against the PKK-YPG, after they created the very conditions for them to return to Syria. Although Trump has whole teams dedicated to Syria, it appears that Washington refuses to acknowledge Turkey's security concerns, just as Roebuck's memo demonstrates. The rise of the YPG brought questions of Kurdish independence or autonomy in northern Syria, which can also find justification for an autonomous or independent Kurdish state in eastern Turkey, as the PKK, militarily and politically, has struggled for decades to achieve this. That comes from the article, Leaked Memo shows the U.S. still does not understand Turkey's Syria operation, by Paul Antonopoulos, 
posted November 21st, originally published on Infobricks. Thumbing his nose at the Geneva Convention, the Rome Statute, the UN Security Council, the UN General Assembly, and the International Court of Justice, Donald Trump decided that Israel's unlawful construction of Jewish settlements in occupied Palestinian territory is lawful. This policy change is part of Trump's pattern of seeking to legalize illegal Israeli practices. It panders to Israel at the expense of the Palestinians while aiming to burnish Trump's bona fides with his Christian Zionist base. Christian Broadcasting Network quoted Jack Graham, pastor of the megachurch Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas, as saying that the Trump administration, quote, once again has demonstrated why evangelical Christians have been unwavering in their support, unquote. The timing of this was not tied to anything that had to do with domestic politics anywhere in Israel or otherwise, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo claimed, denying that the change in policy was designed to benefit Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who's locked in a tight battle for political survival. That comes from the article, Trump's New Policy on Israeli Settlements is Illegal and Self-Serving, by Professor Marjorie Cohn, posted November 21st, originally published at Truth Out. After several days of unremarkable testimony by assorted State Department functionaries, the Democrats continue to struggle with ferreting out a legally defensible impeachable offense to warrant the three-ring circus currently being conducted by Representative Adam Schiff, chair of the House Intel Committee. On a railroad through the Intel Committee, the impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump's alleged attempt at a quid pro quo, Dems are no closer to a surefire, we got him now, piece of evidence, than when the inquiry began as they shift gears to widen the probe into bribery and or extortion, whichever shoe fits. At the outset, it is essential to recognize that the debate surrounding Trump's impeachment is not to protect the Republican status quo as a preference to the Democratic status quo, as both have failed the American people when trusted honorable people of quality were needed. Today's Assembly of House Republicans opposing Schiff at all, provide a glimmer that perhaps such individuals may yet exist. The opposition to the Democrats' impeachment inquiry is, more importantly, an effort to preserve what remains of a constitutional democracy and the rule of law on the outside chance that a true patriot of unimpeachable exceptional character may arise from the ashes. That comes from the article, The Schiff Committee Finds No Impeachable Offense Against Donald Trump, by Renee Parsons, posted November 21st. Officially known reserves in the Salar Uyuni of some 9 million tons correspond to about a quarter of total known world reserves, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. A countrywide lithium deposits in Bolivia, but not yet proven, may reach 21 million tons, mostly in the Uyuni salt flats, according to government projections. World Bank projections see global demand for lithium skyrocketing in the coming years, reaching more than 1,000% of present demand by 2050. A huge proportion of this multi-multi-billion dollar market would be Chinese. It is therefore not too far-fetched to believe that the U.S.-induced military coup itself, and particularly its timing, has something to do with Bolivia's lithium, and more precisely with the China-Bolivia partnership deal. That comes from the article, China-Bolivia, a lithium deal no more, by Peter Koenig, 
posted November 21st. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. November 22, 2019 marks the 56th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. This event has critical significance in that it's not only a story of the tragic death of a popular president, but also marks what some would call a coup d'etat. It's been called a deep event, similar to the assassinations of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Robert Kennedy, as well as the 9-11 attacks, insofar as it is alleged by some to have involved actors within the state apparatus and an organized effort by some within the government to conceal the perpetrators. On this week's show, we revisit Kennedy's assassination and try to glean what lessons can be learned to attain justice and mitigate other such deep events from occurring. We start our discussion with Mark Rabinowitz. Mark Rabinowitz is an independent writer focusing on the intersection of politics and ecology. His interest in the assassinations of JFK and Martin Luther King go back more than three decades. Mark has since studied other so-called deep political events, such as the assassination of Robert Kennedy and 9-11, which he would argue implicate clandestine actors within the U.S. military intelligence community. Much of his research appears on the sites oilempire.us and jfkmoon.org. In May of 2018, he presented a lecture on truth and reconciliation for the National Insecurity State for a symposium at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh around the assassinations of Kennedy and King. Mark Rabinowitz joins us now from Eugene, Oregon. Pleasure having you back on the show, Mark. Thanks again for the invitation. Now, what in your mind are some of the key strategic mistakes made by investigators in trying to achieve justice and accountability for the assassination of John F. Kennedy? One of my favorite uh, pieces of advice is from Martin Schott and Vince Salandria to the best of the JFK researchers who caution us that there is not really a debate over what happened to President Kennedy, it was obvious to some, and should be to all at this point, that he was extrajudicially removed from office for very specific policy reasons, mostly involving the issues of war and peace. Uh, Kennedy had called off the Cold War, he had refused to launch a nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he was making treaties with the Soviet Union, which really annoyed the Pentagon uh, command. And debating whether it was a conspiracy or a lone nut or any other combination of claims is a giant distraction from the obvious. There really, if you, if you want to know every last detail of what happened, maybe there's some rooms for debate on that. But the basic paradigm that it was a coup d'etat is really beyond question at this point. Hmm. I know that uh, among some of the obstacles that are thrown up, I mean, it does seem that people are drawn to the uh, these sorts of uh, concerns about you know the you know magic bullets and uh, you know the lone nut uh, theories and so on and and these sorts of uh, yeah I guess physical evidence claims as opposed to the the, the, the motives that uh, are in question. I mean. Can you point to some um, historic mistakes in that regard that, uh, that that really stand out as of having 
um, redirecting an otherwise um, important in investigation? Um, one of the speakers at the Dallas conference uh, tomorrow and on Saturday is Jim DiEugenio, who has written a couple of books on the case and runs kennedysandking.com. And he has refocused much of his effort to looking at the foreign policy issues, Vietnam, Cuba, Soviet Union, Africa, Middle East, Indonesia, where Kennedy was pushing very different policies than his predecessor or his successor. And these involve radical changes to U.S. foreign policy that threatened the permanent war establishment, profit, power, access to strategic resources, and what type of a society we have. And for calling off the Cold War and the nuclear arms race, that would have been the most profound shift in U.S. history since World War II. What would have been U.S. history if we had pulled out of Vietnam in Kennedy's second term, as he was planning to do? This is not something that's answerable, but the fact that he ordered the start of the withdrawal, that was declassified three decades ago, yet it's not taught in history books, it's not in the media, it's not even in the, most of the alternative media. Even though we, the documents are public, there's no question that this happened. And part of the difficulty of our society in grappling with these issues is the psychological impact of admitting their truth. In other words, if the three-letter agencies really did remove the president from office and covered it up, what does that say about the true state of democracy in the United States? Mm. Well, when you, we, we talk about uh, you know, the concerns about foreign policy, I know there are many very... Uh, respected critics of foreign policy. I mean, Noam Chomsky, for example, comes to mind. But at the same time, they seem to be very critical and, and dismissive of these uh, I examinations of these sorts of, of deep state, uh, you know, the idea of, of the Kennedy assassination being, uh, you know, having been a government conspiracy. Do you, do you see that as being rooted in, in, psych in, in psychology or, or is it potentially something a little more, I don't know, sinister than that? Well, different people have different motives. Mr. Chomsky is documented to have been part of a group in 1969 that was actually looking at what happened to Kennedy. And when the group of academics realized that it was a coup, they got cold feet and pulled back. And Chomsky, ever since, has supported the Warren Commission, Lone Nut, nothing beyond that scenario, which is intellectually dishonest, I think. He has done great work on a number of issues, but on the coup in 1963, uh, he's not really much different than the mainstream media. Hmm. Well, when we look at, uh, like, as I mentioned, there are other uh, of these so-called deep events, deep political events, state crimes against democracy, and another event that's strongly suspected of being uh, another of these, 9-11. Uh, now, the focus today from what I've seen of the movement, is almost exclusively on controlled demolition theories of the collapses of the Twin Towers. Uh, there's a, a lawyer's committee for 9-11 inquiry seeking a special grand jury trial to examine the evidence, but the focus is, is on the evidence of controlled demolition of the collapses. Um, 
is there any reason to believe that investigators of JFK or 9-11 are being deliberately steered toward these sorts of physical evidence arguments rather than the questions of motive that you mentioned? Uh, that is the understatement of the century, unfortunately. Uh, with 9-11 and JFK, one of the parallels is that there were lots of warnings coming in to the national security apparatus that these crimes were about to happen, and yet there were efforts taken to block the warnings, to block the rank-and-file agents in these agencies from doing their job, whether it was to protect the president or to protect New York and Washington, D.C. And in both cases, they were overridden, and in both cases, the official investigations of these crimes were unable or unwilling to touch the issues of foreknowledge and failure to perform standard operating procedure. There's also a huge number of both of these cases of hoaxes and maybe claims that may or may not be true, and the proliferation of ridiculousness mixed with serious and sober evidence deters a lot of other people, especially in the media, academia, and elsewhere, from raising these questions, because who wants to share a stage with people promoting the most ridiculous claims that they would be smeared with? And as for controlled demolition, uh, the firefighters who were in lower Manhattan that day watched the towers buckling before they came down, which is not controlled demolition. In a somewhat sad way, it's fortunate the towers stayed standing as long as they did, which allowed most of the people inside the buildings to get out, not the people above the crashes, unfortunately. But it could have been much worse. It would also have been much worse if the fourth plane had been flown into the Capitol. And fortunate's not really the correct word to use, but 9-11 could have been even worse than it was. Yeah. Well, I should also point out that, I mean, there have been some, there's some, a lot of prominent research and credible people. Uh, maybe you heard of the uh, report that was uh, the very expensive report that was uh, uh, overseen by Leroy Halsey at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Uh, although, to, to be fair, he did not actually mention the term controlled demolition as a presentation, but simply referred to the the implausibility of the report that came from, the, from NIST. Um, I'm much more interested in the fact that the CIA did not tell the FBI that they had tracked the hijackers into the country and blocked that effort from being disseminated within the federal police forces or the plane-in-the-building exercise that was being done at the spy satellite headquarters next to Dulles Airport during the attacks. These and other pieces of solid evidence would put the defenders of the official story on the defensive as opposed to on the offensive. Because with the demolition claim, every engineering firm in the world has looked at this. Uh, and the firefighters who were there that day rejected. And rather than get into that argument, I would much rather focus on the suppressed warnings from foreign countries and from within the national security bureaucracy. And even more important than that is why they did it why they enabled it, why they knew they'd probably get away with it, just as the enablers of the Kennedy assassination also knew they would probably get away with it. Mm. Now, 
moving forward, uh, there is, as you know, uh, as we speak, there's a frenzy around the impeachment of Donald Trump. Now, whatever merit there may be in seeking Trump's impeachment, do you see signals that this impeachment process is, is similarly a kind of manipulation of the public that ends up protecting the guilty? Well, the closest we've come to removing a president from office in modern times was Nixon. And Nixon resigned because he was about to be impeached and realized that he had lost support even among his fellow Republicans. But one of the articles of impeachment was not voted on, and that was war crimes that Nixon and his colleagues had done in Cambodia. Now, obstructing justice and burglary and covering it up, those are all crimes, but what Nixon did to Cambodia is far worse than Watergate. And that was the policy that the Democrats were not willing to actually move forward on. We also had efforts to impeach Ronald Reagan, George Bush I, George Bush II, and Dick Cheney. And in each of those cases, there were no co-sponsors of the impeachment bills whatsoever. So, sure, Trump should be impeached. There's a long list of reasons beyond the ones in the hearing. But he's only likely to suffer this after he's already installed lots of judges, two new Supreme Court justices, and it's sort of a kabuki theater. Yes, I am no fan of Donald Trump, uh, not even for a microsecond. But why the impeachment now and why so narrow in the focus? Uh, My suspicion is the Democrats are happy to have a lot of the policies in place, blame Trump for them, and then once he's gone, they can continue it just as Obama continued the surveillance state policies after George Bush the lesser had uh, left office. Well, the timing is interesting, too, just one year before the election, and... uh so I imagine that even though like the Senate is uh, stacked with Republicans, good luck getting a two-thirds uh, of the members to convict, but uh, I guess this is supposed to damage him going into the election? Um, or is there some something more complex happening here? Well, there's probably something more complex happening, but there's also one of my concerns is that Trump should be impeached for no other reason than he did not actually win the election in 2016. There were voter suppression used in the swing states. There were what I call faith-based voting machines used in some of the swing states that probably flipped the outcomes. And that alone suggests he does not deserve to be in office, apart from disagreements over his policies. But that would involve also pointing the finger at the Democrats, who were reluctant to point this out. There were a handful raise these objections, but the bulk of the Democratic Party does not want to touch the issue of election fraud. Mark, it was announced last January that 60 Americans are calling on Congress to reopen the investigations into the assassinations not only of JFK, but Robert Kennedy, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King. And the signatories of this joint statement include close friends and family members of all four slain leaders, as well as filmmaker Oliver Stone, James Douglas, James DiEugenio, who you just mentioned, uh, the actor Alec Baldwin, and other prominent people. 
you refer to this endeavor on your site as the most encouraging political news you'd heard of in the 40 years you'd been interested in deep politics, covert operations, and living under the threat of nuclear war. Why do you attach so much hope to this endeavor when other efforts from Jim Garrison's unsuccessful prosecution of Clay Shaw to the House Select Committee on Assassinations investigation of the late 70s uh, to Oliver Stone's 1991 film on JFK all seem not to have brought us any closer to justice and accountability? Well, I think all of those cases did bring us a little bit closer. Uh, the momentum is so enormous that even something as awesome as JFK the movie or Jim Garrison or any of the other examples by themselves are insufficient to shift everything because this involves such a rewrite of our understanding of what America actually is that a small effort that got squashed is insufficient by itself. So the Truth and Reconciliation call last winter is the most encouraging development I have seen so far, but it also has not caught fire in the public consciousness. The only newspaper in the United States that gave this any treatment was the Washington Post. I've not normally been a fan of the Washington Post, but their coverage of this and a couple related issues has actually been excellent. doesn't mean I have to endorse everything else that they publish, but on this, they, they treated it as a serious story, and they didn't put in the snarky line that, oh, it's just a bunch of conspiracy theorists, and we have psychological issues that need to be addressed by fantasizing about these uh, events and so forth. They treated it like a regular story. And there has not been the follow-up from the rest of the media to take this seriously. Maybe that can happen, and maybe not. One of the best books I've read on the Kennedy assassination was from an investigator for the House Select Committee on Investigations. Uh, Gates and Fonzie was his name, and his book was called The Last Investigation. So it's a somewhat amusing and sobering examination of what happened to the House Select Committee. This was during the Carter administration. They proved, as if it needed to be proved, that there were multiple gunmen firing in Dealey Plaza, but it led nowhere politically because the broader society didn't pick it up and the political establishment was afraid to touch it. It's a radioactive topic for obvious reasons. So hoping for Congress to reconvene and reinvestigate in the judicial process, well, when you have the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court ratify the coup d'etat, Mr. Warren, where do you go from there in terms of the judicial system? And Congress, if they weren't feeling afraid, probably would reopen this. Same with some of the presidents that we've had. But the national security bureaucracy is above judicial review. They are not subject to political oversight in a meaningful way. They are extra-constitutional appendage to government, and not just on these issues. There are many others. So... Part of the truth and reconciliation would not just be having the CIA hold a press conference to apologize, but the rest of the society needs to collectively come to grips with the psychology of denial and fear and move beyond that in terms of recognizing that 
this is our real history. We need to fess up to it. We need to see how we've let it happen, and not from a punishment uh, perspective, but from a transcendent perspective, how we can shift course because the resources to fix the environmental crisis, resource crisis, and all the other challenges of civilization, the resources to deal with this are locked up in the military intelligence complex, mm. and not just in the United States, all over the world. We've got about a minute left. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about this uh, new movie by Oliver Stone, uh, the uh, JFK Destiny Betrayed. It's coming out uh, not too far away in the future. Well, this is slated to be out in the new year. I don't think they have an exact time for it. Uh, the scriptwriter, or one of the scriptwriters, is Jim DiEugenio, who mentioned before, and his site is kennedysandking.com. And his focus has been on Kennedy's foreign policy, mostly. And for that to be the subject of a new Oliver Stone documentary has me very excited. Okay. Marco Vinitz, I, I really want to thank you for, for joining us today. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Thank you again. We've been speaking with Mark Rabinowitz, a writer, political activist, ecological campaigner, and longtime researcher into deep politics. He's published on the site oilempire.us as well as jfkmoon.org. He's based in Eugene, Oregon. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Peter Dale Scott is a former Canadian diplomat, professor of English at the University of California, Berkeley, co-founder of the Peace and Conflict Studies program at Berkeley, a poet and 2002 recipient of the Lannan Poetry Award. His political books include Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire and the Future of America, The War Conspiracy, JFK 9-11 and the Deep Politics of War, American War Machine, Deep Politics, the CIA, Global Drug Connection, and the Road to Afghanistan, the American Deep State, Wall Street, Big Oil, and the Attack on U.S. Democracy, and Dallas 63, the first Deep State Revolt against the White House. Peter Dale Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm very glad to be back with you. I've got, you know, years of connections with... uh, with Osudowski and global research. The Kennedy assassination of 63 has been referred to as a, essentially a coup d'etat back when uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president when uh, major industrialists, uh, Wall Street overlords, right. were you know, had attempted... <laughs> that was much more a classic coup d'etat attempt, although it didn't get very far. Uh, in my book, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, I actually raised the question, was this a coup d'etat or not? And a coup d'etat is usually a, new, a group uh, ousting a system and establishing a new one. And by that category or that definition, I felt really what happened in 63 was not, because the man who was threatening the establishing system was the president, Kennedy himself, and what he was threatening was the Cold War. And the what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, which had a big stake in the... Uh, was really organized around the maintenance of the Cold War, when they saw that Kennedy was having private and secret uh, 
negotiations outside regular channels with uh, Khrushchev, I think they at that point they said this this is getting out of control. And there is perhaps an analogy with Trump because Trump also is doing the same thing, and specifically with the Soviet Union, though with much more vulgar motives than Kennedy was. Kennedy was trying to stop uh, a nuclear war from consuming the world. What 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 Trump's motives are still are not fully clear, but they're they're certainly not on a very. He he is not interested in international peace and order, uh, he does want to get U.S. troops out of the rest of the world. So he's, he's not an entirely evil man in my eyes, but I would not compare him to a Kennedy for a second. Yeah, we should talk a little bit more about Trump in a minute, but I want to get uh, you know a little bit more in terms of the some of the dynamics of this uh, this event, which uh, in which you have uh, this. Uh, you know what we recognize as a constitutional form of government with power delegated uh, in in the ways that we've all been taught about in school versus this deep state uh this this secretive order which you know with its elements of not only wall street but uh, the the intelligence services and right. w- what is exactly would you say are the uh the the key characteristics that uh, I mean, w- was it always did the, the, the uh, this deep state, you know, reach a kind of a, politi- a critical mass where it could successfully uh, execute uh, that that overthrow uh, or revolt against uh, the the established order, or, or was this something that you know, you know had, that had always yes, I'm been? I'm not proud of that title, by the way, because. Uh, I'm always warning against thinking of the deep state as like some kind of secret headquarters where they plan things. It's a milieu. It's a system. And in my book on the deep state, I compare it to a weather system. uh, There are certain things that can be said about a weather system, but there are certain things that you cannot say. And I distinguish between the idea of the deep state as a system, and I was slightly criticizing somebody else's book at this point. I want to say it's not a structure. Uh, I think it was Fletcher Prouty who had the the term the secret team, and he was there, there. There was a secret team, but the secret team was not anything like a deep state, because the deep state is different groups of people competing to do various things. And now coming back to, it's all very abstract what I said, but coming back to the Kennedy assassination, one thing is very clear, and that is the various intelligence agencies (laughs) kicked right in at the very beginning with a cover-up. And whatever else you say, you you cannot, uh, that cover-up was essential to preventing the uh, solution of the crime. A crime was committed, it was not properly investigated, and the FBI and the CIA between them share the blame for that. Now, that doesn't mean that they themselves plotted the death of the president. And in the case of the CIA, there's a very relevant fact to the cover-up, which almost suggests that maybe they were not the primary organizers. 
And that is the fact that, it, and it's rarely mentioned or not mentioned nearly enough, that about seven or eight weeks before the actual assassination, the CIA started a counterintelligence operation, and that involved Lee Harvey Oswald. And reports that we got from Mexico City about, about A, the Harvey Oswald, I don't think it was the man in Dallas. I think I could prove it wasn't, in fact. Uh, but A, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, went into the Cuban consulate and laid a trail of evidence which, if not properly controlled, would lead back to the CIA. And uh, that was that. Those operations, I think, were piggybacked. That is to say, a, a, a smaller group, knowing that the CIA was doing this, knew that if they could pin the assassination on Lee Harvey Oswald, the CIA would step in to protect itself. And the uh, and the, and the, uh, similar things were done. Things were planted to embarrass the FBI. The plotters did things to embarrass the FBI and embarrass the CIA so that they both kicked in with a cover-up. My prima facie conclusion from that was that the plotters, the primary plotters, were not the CIA, not the FBI, could very well have been people inside both of those agencies and my personal suspects which don't uh, I wouldn't attach too much importance to but I suspect James Angleton and the CIA who not only knew about this operation but he he also he started it um and then his sidekick in the FBI who was uh, William Sullivan mm. so you get layers and layers and layers when you're talking about the deep state, and uh, I think what is to come back to the simple statement that somehow you have to look inside the deep state to solve the Kennedy assassination because the most important uh, immediate consequence of deep state involvement afterwards was their very obvious involvement. And I should have mentioned the media, too, who, are, of course, work very closely with. The media depend on the FBI and the CIA for their stories, or at mm -hmm. least what we call the mainstream media, the Times and the Post, um, and the big television networks. They get their stories from authorized leaks from the CIA, so they, they are, they're part of the deep state, too. Yeah, and they definitely were responsible for the cover-up, so... Somewhere behind the, in the deeper resort, uh, recesses of the deep state is probably the uh, the people who who were managed to pull this thing off, and uh, that's where we come back to my idea that it really, in the case of Kennedy, wasn't a coup because those people were really controlling the country. And Kennedy was threatening their way of running things, so they got rid of him. Yeah, I mean, threatening to end the Cold War, pull people out of Viet, uh, pull troops out of Vietnam, and and right. And Primarily, I I think that the, the far and away the most important factor 
was what Kennedy was doing, and it was frankly conspiratorial because he didn't trust the CIA, and he he was right not to trust the CIA. So he, Bobby Kennedy, was working through his friend Walton, who was had a, 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 a what we call a, usually it's called a back channel, but in this case it was off the. Uh, off the reservation contact with a Soviet journalist, and uh, this is, that's I talk about that in my book, the the first deep state, uh, Dallas '63. Now, I know that uh, in the, uh, the the American deep state uh, book that you you mentioned, there was a uh, you 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 talked about how uh, through the '60s and the '70s there was a, a kind of a power. Struggle that was going on between these uh, the, the, that constitutional form of government and this sort of bizarre uh, conglomeration of, of entities that uh, has been you know we call the deep state and uh, you know in throughout that time you never had a president that served an entire two terms and then essentially that uh, that deep state apparatus basically took control of American policy and we've seen uh, from those over over the course of the next two decades. Uh, presidents who have served two terms with the sole exception of George Herbert Walker Bush and uh, they, they appear to have been compliant with that order and that that seems to have been the the established right uh, well i wrote that uh, <laughs> i wrote that book before trump because uh, trump is not being totally compliant at all with that order so my book is slightly dated in that respect but it was the reagan revolution was I consider really essentially a deep state revolution. Uh, they uh, uh, they they sort of liberated. Uh, they got rid of what was left of FDR's uh, a New Deal. Essentially, they broke the power of the unions. Reagan did that immediately, um, and they uh, sort of it, it was. It, it, they created an ideal situation for uh, what's sometimes called neoliberalism, which is unrestrained capitalist operations. So, creating, in effect, a new gilded age. We we got. If you look at the uh, figures on disparity of wealth and income in America. Starting with the first Roosevelt, around the year in the first decade of the 20th century, Theodore Roosevelt, you get progressive reforms, you get an income tax, you get a number, you get regulation of the banks, you get a, a number of things which led for 80 years to a reduction in disparity of wealth in America and. That is absolutely vital for the health of democracy. And uh, the, with what happened in the decades, in the 60s and the 70s, it really prepared for uh, Reagan to uh, oust what we call the moderate Republicans of the Council on Foreign Relations and bring in an unrestrained capitalism which uh, it's not been good for American democracy because now really the elections are they're determined before people go to the polls because big money on both sides selects the candidates in both parties. So um, 
you're given a kind of Hobson's choice at the end between two candidates who normally don't uh, don't differ very much. That was not true in 2016 because Trump really did differ. But it, he presents it as if he came in to fight the deep state. No, he came in backed by what was traditionally a minority element of the deep state, which... Uh, I think it was best understood by the American people is the John Birch Society. That was part of the deep state, and I could go into that more if you liked, but mm. uh, the uh, the people who don't like regulation, who want to just make everything free, uh, they got a big boost up in the Reagan era, and they really took over in the... Uh, 2016 election, except that it's now evenly balanced, really, between what you might call the traditional Washington, the, the rule of law Washington, versus uh, the people who don't care about the rule of law and Trump. There are good and bad sides to Trump, but I would say the bad side of him is summed up by his total disrespect for the idea of a rule of law which is uh, so clearly exhibited month after month that uh, it's, it's even hard to describe at this point. But the good side of him is that he, he, he campaigned on the idea of ending U.S. intervention in the rest of the world. I'm a Canadian. I'm all for that. So in that, to that limited extent, I'm pro-Trump. And I'm not really taking sides in what's going on now in Washington because, um, you know, whatever, whichever side wins, something good will have been established and something good will have been lost. Professor Scott, I want to point to just back up a little bit because you were talking about how Trump is essentially representative of a minority faction of the the ruling elite, which uh, seems to have been become more exaggerated to the point where where they are now contesting with what I believe you've called the the Davo the party of Davos the the internationalists. You know, it's so it's like the Koch brothers faction versus the uh, you know Bill Gates and 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 all of those guys. But I mean, yes, that's, that's that, I'm glad you put it as neatly as that. And I might just point out that uh, the Koch brothers' father, Fred Koch, was one of the 11 people who, back in 1958, created the John Birch Society. So, um, and I barely mentioned the John Birch. I did mention them, but I didn't spend enough time on them in the first edition of the American Deep State. I I then wrote an introduction for the paperback edition, which is, by the way, has a slightly different title than the one you gave, because it's a slightly different book. The, uh, the, the revised paperback is the American Deep State, Big Money, Big Oil, and uh, the threat to, uh, for American democracy, because Wall Street is not the only faction now, although it, I would certainly say it's the dominant one. Mm. Well, 
So I, I'm, I find it compelling to try to make a comparison between Trump and Nixon because, I mean, you, like, there, were, there were good reasons to want to impeach Nixon, but that's, there's a difference between what maybe the, the, the American people uh, and, and, and social and progressive forces might see as his evils versus what this deep state uh, would would find problem with. So I, I'm wondering if you could possibly point out some of the important similarities and differences between what we're seeing with well, Trump. Yeah, and- I'd like to bring in JFK too on that because uh, the the striking similarities, first of all, are uh, between Nixon and JFK. Nixon had aroused. He 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 had ambitions for power, and he created a new drug enforcement agency which uh, the DEA, which looked to some people as a way of uh, balancing the power of the, C- of the CIA. And uh, he aroused, he was, he was actually being spied on by the, uh, the military agencies, uh, intelligence agencies. And he got into more and more of a fight with the CIA um, I don't want to give you my whole theory of Watergate in this short broadcast, but it's very clear that he banished uh, the head of the CIA to he, Richard Helms. He sent him off to Iran to be uh, the ambassador there, and he, Nixon made a mistake in sending him to Iran because uh, in Iran, Helms was able to plot with the Iranian intelligence agency, which had essentially been set up by the CIA. And my belief is that the CIA engineered the, um, or people in the CIA, I have to be careful, uh, were part of the campaign to bring down Nixon. Now, if you come, next come now to Trump, uh, if 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 it's if we understand that there was a tension between Nixon and the CIA, it's very obvious there's a tension between Trump and all of the intelligence agencies in Washington because they said that there was Russian uh, interference in the 2016 election, which produced Trump as the winner and. Trump has been calling that a scam, a witch hunt, and, and the rest of it. So we're seeing acted out in headlines with uh, Trump something that was much more hidden than under the surface in the time of Nixon and Watergate. But there is a very strong, in my, in my view, a very strong analogy between both of these, which extends back to... Uh, even even more subdued level, uh, Kennedy and the CIA in 1963. The famous quote from Kennedy that he vowed to break the CIA into a thousand pieces. What are your your, your thoughts about to you know, the, the, the evolution and, and the sophistication, if if I could put it that way, of, of this uh, deep state apparatus? Because we we're not seeing the assassinations that we saw four uh, assassinations of powerful people, uh, you know, contesting that that those you know military industrial complex and then the national security state. And these days, you you don't have to take it to that point. You can. Uh, you, I guess, rely on defamation or, or you know, control of the media. C- could I get you to comment There's on something some of the- else? That I feel uh, you know we've tried to get a, an overview of the last few decades. Something else we have to stick in here, I think, is nine eleven. Uh, 
because I think that there are, and I talk about this in my book, The War Conspiracy, I have a whole chapter on similarities in the modus operandi between the Kennedy assassination and the uh, and 9/11. I'll just give one as an example, and that is immediately you know who did it. You identify the suspect, and then when you start to f- inquire, how did you know the suspect? Uh, the, the 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 name of Oswald in Kennedy's case, and the 19 Arabs. How we knew that turns out to be very suspicious. And it gets worse and worse the more you look at it closely. So, uh, to me, there are very strong analogies uh, between the Kennedy assassination and 9-11. I'll give one one more at the other end, uh, the highest level, is that obviously there were people who knew in advance that it was going to happen and started speculating on the stock market in a way which indicated foreknowledge of the assassination in 63 and foreknowledge of the damage to the airlines in the case of 9-11. There's about to be some major scholarly research published on the second case that the banking interests who speculate, well, I should say financial interests, who made major, major uh, speculations, what, what we call the, um, they, they got puts. Put they, options. They yeah. undertook to buy stock and pay for it later, knowing that the stock would decline in value because of 9-11. They did this in the airlines, and they did this, in the insurance companies and the reins above all the reinsurance companies in a way which it's you 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 have to say it's it was so systematic it's, it it indicates foreknowledge and when you put in 911 we have now the implementation of continuity of government um, plans which were Planned by, of all people, all through the 80s, they were being systematically planned by um, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney and a number of other people, not just those two. But the amazing thing is that on 9-11, Rumsfeld and Cheney got to implement the plans that they'd been working on for 20 years. And I think that is a very, very major component in this, where we are today, and it comes up in the Trump case, because Trump is complaining about FISA. Uh, this gets technical, uh, but he's complaining about ways that uh, investigations were secretly authorized against people in his own campaign in 2016. And that was all done by the machinery of of, uh, continuity of government, which parts of which are now embodied in statutes, which I feel should be repealed. We have what they are really a partial suspension of democratic process in the case of a crisis, of an emergency. And you know, America has been technically in the state of emergency ever since September 2001 because of 9-11. And there's an American Emergencies Act, which is um, done in response to Watergate, 
uh, in trying to make sure that emergencies are not prolonged forever. They have, by law, to be reviewed every within a year by Congress and either terminated or extended. And that's not happened. The law has been broken, and uh, the uh, state of emergency declared in uh, 2001 has been annually renewed by every president ever since, including Trump, predictably renewed in the month of September, whatever year. And that is against the law, which uh, governs the creation of emergencies, because Congress is supposed to have done something to either authorize or terminate it. And when back in 2008, I tried to get somebody, I teamed up with a former congressman, and we tried to get the situation rectified, and we got support in Congress but uh, the congressman uh, was told that that part of the act was no longer valid because of the state of emergency that had been declared and the rules of continuity of government. So this is behind the current crisis that's going on between the Democrats and the Republicans, between Trump and the deep state, is this endurance of a state of emergency which has changed the rules of democracy and which needs to be uh, addressed, at least examined, if not terminated, and that's not being done. And that's what I consider is the real crisis in America right now, which is uh, being the, and what the, the, the mini crisis of whether he's. Um, Trump is impeached or not it's not very important in my mind because I don't think it's going to make much difference if he's impeached or if he's not impeached but I do think the state of emergency has made a very real difference to this country it does really relate back to the Kennedy assassination because that was the first time that elements in the deep state were able to revise the future of American government. Whatever happens now with between Trump and uh, the uh, CIA and the Democrats and these very well-intentioned uh, witnesses who have come forward risking their careers, who are also, if you notice, cold warriors. They're all people who wanted to bring Trump, uh, bring Ukraine into NATO, and in one case, uh, the witness, Morrison, wanted to do something about Crimea. We still have cold warriors, and uh, that's why I, I will be a bit sad if, uh, if um, what happens is just a complete restitution of the American war machine. I want to thank you very much for, uh, for sharing your insights on our show. Well, thank you, Michael, for your interest. We've been speaking with Professor Peter Dale Scott, a former Canadian diplomat, professor of English at the University of California, Berkeley, and co-founder of the Peace and Conflict Studies Program at Berkeley. His uh, website um, is at www.peterdalescott.net. As well, you can find him on Facebook at Peter Dale Scott. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. 
You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you.